Hey everyone, welcome to the Gate Alliance Church. We're so glad you could join us for this week's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged in our church, check us out online at thegatechurch.ca. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's podcast. Well, we are in a message called Verbundance, and the scripture text is a blueprint from the early church. It says this, They spent their time in learning from the apostles. They spent their time, they set aside time, they invested their life learning from the apostles, taking part in the fellowship. Pastor Dave spoke about sharing the fellowship of meals is what we're talking about today and prayers. And as I said last week, when it comes to church life, we say, yeah, I get the teaching and learning part. That's a big part of what we do together. And I get a part, obviously prayer is an important key part of what we do as a church, I understand why that's needed in a successful church. And even the fellowship, doing life together is so important. But I think a lot of us might be surprised, like even meals, the fe- you know, having meals together. Uh, and why would the church, of all the things they could have listed, uh, that this is why we are, we are we're God's blessing us, that meals is one of them. And it's because we learned back, as we said last week in Leviticus chapter 23, that the Lord appointed um, some official days for holy assembly. He appointed the appointed festivals, their official days for holy assembly, so that we come together to be celebrated at the proper times each year. These are feasts. These are festivals that connect with meals together. And uh, the word appointed, in case you, you love this sort of thing, in the original Hebrew, which I don't know Hebrew, so I, I have to just take someone's word for this, um, it comes from the word, the root word purpose. So God's saying there's a purpose in all these meals. And that's what I love about this. There's a reason why I pointed these feasts, because they all connect to Jesus. Even before Jesus came, he's pointing at the very first Passover, he's pointing to Jesus. At the unleavened bread, festival of unleavened bread we saw last week, he's pointing to Jesus. And we're going to continue to see today how these appointed feasts point you and I to Jesus. So, And we need that hope. I need to know, God, you got a plan. And when he does that, and I say, oh, look at this. I, never, I didn't see that. I didn't realize what you're doing back there connects to here. I say, God, you're in control. And uh, so that's why we're looking at that. So the spring feast, there's the feast were in the spring and the fall. There's summer, there's a break. Uh, in the spring, there's Passover and, and a feast. There was the unleavened bread, which we looked at last week. And we took communion together to celebrate that feast together as a church. And today we're looking at a few more of the feasts and how God used them and uses them to point to the church or to point to Jesus. So let's recap. Uh, Passover, just as you know, um, was back when the people, God's people, were held captive in Egypt. They did not want to be in bondage. They did not want to be held captive. They cried out to God, free us. So God heard them, sent Moses. And remember, Moses did all these plagues, right? And Pharaoh kept saying, I'm not letting my people go. And there was one final plague when Moses said, God will send this angel of death. And the first was the firstborn son, I think it was, would, would, would die. And unless, unless you took a, a, a male lamb that's unblemished, don't give me, you know, don't give me the seconds, the, the unblemished male lamb, and you would slaughter that lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of your house. If that was you and you did that and trusted God, that way the angel of death would pass over you. See, that's why we call it Passover. And that's what happened. The angel of death came, but those who trusted God and applied the blood passed over. In the same way, Jesus is our Passover lamb. 
That's why we talk about the blood of Christ. It sounds strange sometimes. They're awkward to people, but when we apply Jesus, what he did on the cross for us, he is our Passover lamb. Death will pass over us. So that's why we talked about Passover. And then um, we talked about uh, how the fact that there was lamb selection day when, when the Passover was celebrated after that. Every year, uh, the family would, uh, for 1,500 years, would, would select uh, a lamb, again, male lamb for, without blemish, and sacrifices to remember how God delivered them. That was called lamb selection day. It's a good title for a day when you select a lamb. And the thing is, God sent Jesus into Jerusalem to be crucified, riding on the donkey, we call Palm Sunday, on Lamb Selection Day. God was saying, this is, I'm offering my son as a Passover lamb. I'm selecting, choosing him, my first male, my, my male son, without sin, without blemish, was sacrifice for you. So Jesus is our Passover lamb, was crucified at the same time Passover lambs were slaughtered in the day, and sacrifice. So God's purposely saying, look at this isn't coincidence. This isn't just a sake for having meals. I'm trying to tell you something about your life and about what I'm, how I'm moving in your life. And um, so that's what we looked at last week. And um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, just in case you think, Mark, you're making this up, it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. So the Bible makes that connection. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And Jesus had no sin. And remember, we talked about the unleavened bread and why we offer unleavened bread to you at communion time is because Jesus offered to his disciples that way unleavened bread because leaven was a symbolic metaphor for sin in the Bible. When we talk about leaven or yeast in the Bible, it always refers to sin. So Jesus was without sin. He was without leaven. So he offered himself without sin to the people. And so when he offers his body to us, take, eat this He's saying, I'm offering you myself. I have no sin. There's no leaven. Take this and remember. So we talked about that last week. I love those connections. Today, we're going to continue to talk about the Feast of the First Fruits. You have your sermon notes. If it helps you learn that way, please follow along. And I think I, what I like them is later I look back. If I'm going to a message, uh, my mentor did this. And sometimes I would look at it and I'd say, what did he say? And I'll go back, remember the scriptures, remember what was taught. Because I sometimes forget when I walk out the door. So the um, first feast of the first fruits, God commanded his people, that's us still today, to give the first and best parts, portions of their harvest as an offering to him. This was in a, in a culture of, there's a name for it, I can't remember, agricultural culture. There's a fancy name for it that's alluding me. But um, the offering of the first fruits was the people's expression of faith. That something more would come later. Here's, my, here's the first fruits of my harvest. And boy, I love this. It's great. It's fresh. And I'd love to keep it, Lord, but I'm going to take it to you, give it to you, and honor to you, glorify you, believing and trusting that you're going, to, you're going to take care of all my needs, that there's more to come. Um, and we do that still today. We do it in God's tithes this morning. I, I do it online now because of. COVID, I'm in the habit of doing that. I'd love to get back to where we make, somehow make it a, a worship, an act of worship in a church again. But I have my check, and I cash, and I put, or I put it online. But the first part, I give back to the Lord. These are my first fruits. They have my increase this week, God. And a tithe, the 10%, I give back to him. We do that today trusting the same way. I know this is valuable to me. This is important to me. This is the first of my paycheck, my increase. But I'm going to trust you with this 
I want to honor you with this. And what God does, I don't expect this, but he does this. He always makes sure I have everything I need. So the Passover feast we, we talked about last week took place on a Friday. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, so nothing happened that day. And then the Feast of the First Fruits took place on the Sunday. And as mentioned, the first fruits was when God's people expressed their faith. We trust you, God, more and better is to come. So how does this tie into Jesus? Well, what we'll see. Jesus was crucified on the cross as our sacrificial Passover lamb on Passover Friday. Again, and I don't want to be redundant, but Jesus is our Passover lamb. As people are selecting their lambs to be, you know, God has selected his lamb. On the same day they were sacrificing their lambs, the lamb of God was being sacrificed. Jerry, and Jesus was buried on that day, Friday, buried on the tomb so he wouldn't be alive on the Sabbath. He was buried in the tomb. Next day, Saturday, the Sabbath, nothing happened. Then on the third day, it was Sunday, the day when they celebrated the, first, the Feast of the First Fruits. What happened to Jesus on the third day? You know, he rose again. And here's a truth and a promise for your, your life. You need to let this sink in. This should give you hope. You should be leaving here today going, whoa, if this is true, and it is true, I'm leaving here today with hope. Because the Bible tells us this. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives on, lives in you. That's what happens when we accept God into Christ in our life. He comes and lives in us. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So the same power that lived within Jesus Christ, that caused to be raised from the dead, when you accept Jesus in your life and you apply the blood, when you accept his sacrifice as your sacrifice, that same power now lives in you. So someday you're going to take your last breath. They're not going to put you in a, in a grave or an urn. That's not it. That's not the end. Because you will rise again. And Jesus' resurrection acts for us as the first fruits. For what is to come? If you trust him, you follow him, Jesus' victory over death is like this first fruits God is saying to you, promising you something greater to come, which is eternal life. Trust God now. See, this is what it is. You trust God now with these first years of your life here on earth. I don't know how many years you have. Hopefully a lot. If you go to the gate, apparently you'll live in your 90s, so that's good news. But trust him now, saying, God, I give you this life. I give you my life here, and now I'm trusting you, I'm following you, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to obey you. It's not just going to be going through motions. Glorify him now. Serve him now. Trust him now. And you're going to know more. It's God's promise. You will have eternal life and just as Jesus rose from the grave as our first, the first fruits Jesus, God's giving us, you will raise, be raised from the grave. And that's just not Mark Royal talking. That's why it's important that I put scriptures up. I want you to understand, this is not just me talking. I'm just saying what God is saying. In 1 Corinthians, we read this, this fact, and it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, so he's the first one to do this. But if you follow him, you will follow him in the resurrection. 
Another translation says in the same verse, but it is true. Christ has been raised from the dead. He was the first one to be raised from the dead, and all those who are in graves will follow. You're going to be in a grave someday. But if you have Jesus in your life, you're not going to stay there. You're going to follow him in eternal life. I want that. that. There's nothing more important to say that, God, I want to give my life to you here now, and, I, and if, if that's, I, that's enough in itself because you do give a life, full life, an abundant life. But I get more than that. I, I give you this, which is great, but you're going to give me even more. So that is the Feast of the First Fruits. Then comes the Feast of Pentecost, which took place 50 days later. And uh, for Israel, this was a celebration of the full harvest. They, gave, they celebrated the first fruits, with promising more would come, more had come, and now they celebrate the full harvest. And we know that it was during this time of Pentecost in the Bible, the Feast of Pentecost, when God sent his Holy Spirit to come upon his disciples. That happened 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And, uh, and at that Pentecost event that we read about in Acts is the first harvest we find of souls saved through what Jesus did. So here at the first Pentecost, Jesus rose from the grave. Peter now, the Holy Spirit comes on Peter, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach what happened to Jesus. He, you know this. He says, you know who he was. You saw him. You saw him crucified. You saw him be buried in the tomb. Then you saw his tomb empty. Many of you, up to 500 at a time, saw him alive. And Peter's preaching this. And people can't deny it because they, are, they know this is true. And we read this in the Bible. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Because they know it's true. What should we do? It's not like I'm listening. I, yes, it's true, but I, what, how am I to respond to this truth? That's what abundance is about. How does, do I take, how do I get the abundance? What verb do I apply so I may know this abundance, the abundance of life? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized. Repent means you're willing to change your life. You're willing to turn it around. You're going this direction. Now you're saying God says you want to go, he wants to take you this direction. You say, okay, I'll go there. You turn to him. That's what repenting means. And you're baptized. Oh. Have you been baptized? This is a good time to ask. August 27th, we're going to have our baptismal tank out again. And I don't mean just if you were baptized as a kid, child. I, I get some churches do that, and that's because your parents really want you to know, be raised in the church. God bless them for that. But baptism in the Bible is like when you're old enough, it's not your parents' decision. It's your decision saying, I want to follow you. I've accepted you as the Lord of my life. My, I may, you know, my parents didn't do this. I'm doing this. I'm accountable for my life. What baptism is is you publicly declaring that for you as an adult, as someone who understands. If you have not been baptized, please don't miss it. It's a command. It's a command. Every time, you know, be, repent, baptize. We hear that all over. We hear that time and time again. Um, so please speak to me or someone that if you want to be baptized, August 27th, it'll be, you'll be fulfilling something that Christ asks you to do. So he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then, 
Then, one important word it is, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to receive that power that raised Jesus from the death. If you would be willing to say, I'm, I've sinned, I'm sorry, I'll repent, I'll be baptized, I'll forgive my sins, God said, I will forgive your sins, then you receive God's Spirit living in you. The same Spirit that raised him from the dead. In other words, that same power to live in him will live in you, and you will not remain in the grave. Um, and, and next, we, we read about the actual first harvest of souls. So this is Pentecost, celebrating the full harvest. And then what happened after Peter's preaching this is we read this in Acts 2.41. Those who believed that Peter said were baptized, they're obedient, and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So that's the harvest. That's the first full harvest uh, that, of the church. When Peter preached, people received this, said, I believe this, more than I believe this, I'm going to do something about it, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to be baptized. 3,000 people who heard that message that day said yes, and their lives changed forever. That was the very first full harvest. Then there's, they were going to go, that was the summer feast, or the spring feast, we, we skipped the summer, there's nothing happening in summer, but then there's these fall feasts, I'm going to try to get through a couple of them today because for time, but there's the Feast of the Trumpets, this is the one, first one in the fall. Um, it is the fifth of the biblical feasts. That in the Bible, the blowing of the trumpet, we heard the trumpet being blown. It was a sign that God is about to show up. God is, is, he is arriving. He is about to appear. And there's this expectation when the trumpet was blown that God will suddenly uh, be getting our attention. He'll be, he'll be coming and, and arriving uh, and appearing to us in some way with some message. And the New Testament, when the trumpet was blown then, what it meant was, it talked about the day when Jesus is returning. When Jesus returns, history will end. Jesus will gather all the believers, it says in the Bible, to take back into heaven. And all this will be preceded by a blowing of the trumpet. That's what the Bible says. I guess we'll hear it. And it's kind of like, you know, this is a horrible analogy, but it's kind of like the buzzer in a game. You know, when the buzzer, bzz, time's up. Now it's time for reckoning and settlement. It turns over. And no one should be surprised. When you hear the trumpet blown and Jesus comes back, and if you hear that would happen right now, we suddenly hear this trumpet around the world. And you're saying, I had no idea. It's because you're not listening. In fact, um, David Jeremiah, a great Bible teacher, he noted that for every, every biblical prophecy on the first coming of Jesus, which has already happened, we knew it was coming, when, where, how, who's we related to. He says for every prophecy concerning his first coming, there are eight concerning his second coming. God wants to make it clear, Jesus is coming back again. Are you ready? That should alert us. That should tell us the importance of being ready for when he comes back. We don't know when. He'd be like a thief in the night. We're not expecting it. There are signs, and certainly we see the signs that were in the last days. But someday we're going to hear that. And I know that because then Jesus himself said, and he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and they'll gather all his chosen ones from all over the world. Hopefully that's you, from the farthest ends of the earth of heaven. Now, the festival of the trumpets began with this time of introspection and repentance. That's that word again. 
And I want to today kind of connect this to um, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to give you some time to find Nehemiah chapter 8, because I really love this. Um, I talked about Acts 2.42 being like this blueprint for the church. Nehemiah chapter 8, to me, for me, seems to, it's like this blueprint for revival. And we looked at Nehemiah early this year, and in the spring, we called the series Rebuilders. And if you missed it, you can go online because all the series are there, and you can, we can look at Nehemiah. But Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, we're going to see this blueprint for revival. We're going to see uh, God visiting the people, his people, um, during this Feast of Trumpets. And what has happened is that the wall of Jerusalem has been completed in 52 days. It laid in ruins for years. People tried, couldn't get it done. Nehemiah showed up. God gave him this burden. In 52 days, the wall is done. And the people are gathering together for the Feast of Trumpets. God is going to show up. What's going to happen? Nehemiah begins this way. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> in October, and apparently it was October 8th, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose. I love that. At the square, just inside the water gate. Now the water gate, there's different entrances in the temple. There's a dung gate. There's a water gate. Not the kind that Robert Nixon was participating in. But the water gate was there because the, um, we think because the spring of um, uh, Gion, Gion and other sources of water were closest to this gate. And for some of the festivals, like the Festival of the Tabernacles, people had to bring a water offering. And so this is where the water is. This is the gate you use. Let's call it the water, the water um, gate. And so this gate was likely to bring in waters for this. Verses 2 and 3. So October 8th, there's a date, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law. That's the Bible as they had it, the first five books of the Bible of Moses. <clears throat> Before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square, this is Ezra, just inside the water gate from early morning until noon, and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law, to the word of God. And it's interesting, since this day when Ezra preached the word of God from the water gate, um, there's been a connection between the word of God and water. In Ephesians 5, 26, and, uh, it tells us how Jesus gave up his life for us, the church, to make her holy and clean, how washed by the cleansing of God's word. So that God's word is like this cleansing agent in our life. It's a place of cleaning. It, it, you know, and it continues that, to be so on a daily basis. So the water gate is a place of, of cleansing, the word of God. Uh, it's a place of sanctification where we set our part, ourselves apart for God to be renewed and um, and being purged. So think about, and I think about today, like, I think about the, the sexual confusion we're experiencing today. I think about the increasing numbers of people struggling with anxiety and addiction and feeling lost and hopeless. And I, was, and I, and I know, I know for, for that, if, if, 
If people align themselves with this cleansing word, their lives will be transformed. And the enemy is so, he's so, he, he obviously has this power that he says, no, I'm not, I'm going to keep you. You're here, lost, confused, but I'm going to keep you from this. There's power in what God says to us. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, for example, remember that? He said to them, he's talking about the importance of being spiritually clean, not just your feet being physically clean. He says, Jesus says, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. In other words, um, you don't get what I'm doing right now. I'm going to be going to the cross. I'm going to be dying for your sins. And Peter, he protests when Jesus tries to wash his feet. He says, yeah, no, uh, you will never wash my feet. You are Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. But Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Like you can't become my follower and, and a Christian and, and have the Holy Spirit living in you unless you allow me to cleanse you. And he's doing that with water because the water signifies that cleansing agent of his word. So Peter said then, okay, if that's true, wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And it was 800 years later at the same place at the water gate in the temple where Ezra was reading the word, that Jesus said this, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He's referring to himself. Water and scripture, symbolic of the cleansing word of God. I love this story. Um, I love reading about pastors, and especially back in the, in the day. And there was a pastor by the name of uh, William Orange. He was a devoted minister in Christ Church, New Zealand. And he tells the story how one day a worried parishioner came up to him and expressed her concern because she could not remember his sermons. And I get that. I honestly will I have to go back to try to remember what I spoke on because I, I'm like you. I, I, I spent the whole week doing it, and sometimes I forget what I spoke on. So I understand that. But he said to her this illustration that helps me. He said, when you have a dirty kitchen colander, like a strainer, you wash it in water. The water runs out, but the colander is clean. My sermons are like that. If I preach the Bible faithfully, you may not afterwards recall much of what I say, but if you listen to the word of God, it cleanses you. It makes you clean again. So it tells me how important this word is for us today. Maybe we won't remember in a week or two weeks or a year, but what are you, how are you responding to, to it today? So back to Nehemiah, chapter 8, we're in verses 5 and 6. Ezra stood on the platform in view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, as I'm doing now, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen. As he lifted their hands, they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I was uh, reading a commentary on Nehemiah just to refresh myself, and, and uh, the author is pointing out that the people demonstrated these characteristics. Of, of the, this, is how they, this is how the Word of God is open, the book's open. This is how they responded to it. Number one, it's in your notes, the people were responsive. That's so important. The people knew they weren't just listening to, listening to the words of Ezra, not just listening, listening to the words of Mark. They knew this is the voice, the Word of God speaking 
into their lives. And when you stop and you're still before God, before his voice, as you read his word, what do you hear? When you did that this week, when you took your word and you said, God, I just want to spend some time without distraction and, and just focus on you. I love doing that. I'm not playing this, but I can see my Bible. I, I circle, I write things down because God speaks to you. What did you hear? What is God saying to you? Did you give him the opportunity to speak into your life? This is, this is the primary way he speaks into your life. So the life, uh, for these people in Nehemiah chapter 8, changed forever. And it just, it, it all started with this, verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view. Everybody could see him. When they saw him, open the book. We're going to hear from God. God's going to show up. They all rose to their feet. What will God do in your life as you open the book? The reading of God's word led directly to the people opening their hearts to the Lord. And when they heard the word of God being read, they realized just how far they had gone astray. See, it was like, it was like oh, I, I I hear God's word, suddenly so realize where I am, and realize there's this gap, and, and, uh, and so they began to, to, to weep and to mourn because it, it mattered to them how far they strayed. Uh, Victor Hugo, who over a century ago said, century ago said these words, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. And there was a time not long ago, I'm not, I don't think I'm that old, 61, that's not old, is it? But I can remember when, I know that, that the Word of God was more prominent even in my life. I remember in high school, before every class, saying the Lord's Prayer. And I would say it out loud because I was a follower. I, I amazed myself that I was not ashamed. I, I would say it out loud and, and pray the Lord's Prayer. We used to do that in school. Um, there was a time not long ago when we as Canadian people recognized the Bible more in our culture and our society than we do now. I know when I come across the river, I'm across the, you know, that's a, that's, I learned that slang in Niagara Falls from going to the States. Uh, when I come back over and I'm in the lineup uh, to come back into the falls, there's, I always in the lineup and then pause and I look over to this monument. Have you ever noticed there's a monument at the Rainbow Bridge? And this is a picture of it. Have you seen that? You're coming up to the booth, you look over to the left, and there's scripture on it. One day, Glenn and I noticed there's scripture on that monument. And uh, the words are from Genesis 9, 12, and 17. I may not read them all, but it talks about the promise when God said, I will not bring a flood. I will, I'll give you a rainbow as a sign, as a promise that I am with you. I will you know, protect you. I will help you. And I thought, wow, some point in Canada, at the Rainbow Bridge, or there's a rainbow over the falls, somebody said, let's put scripture to remind us what that rainbow is about. And then the, and the very end of it, in the bottom, you can't see in that picture, is a, is a verse from Ezekiel where, again, it's recognized. I'll read, maybe I'll read this one. As the appearance of the bow, the rainbow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of the one that spoke. We put that on a monument. When Canada was established as a nation 156 years ago, 
It established itself as a Christian nation. Our motto was taken from Psalm 72, 8. Do you remember what it says? He shall have dominion from sea to sea. That was our motto. It's still our motto, I think, I hope. I, I, I learned that, I know, I've always heard that Toronto is the capital of our province. was called Toronto the Good. I, I knew that. It was a place where apparently streetcars did not run on Sundays. And I'm, I'm not talking like legalistically, but I'm talking that people were, were setting aside this part of the day, this day aside, so they, there's no need for streetcars. But what I did not know was the mayor of the city flew a banner from Psalm 127-2, and it said this, except the Lord build the city, the watchman wakes in vain. The mayor, I, want, I don't think that could be done now. And I wish, I really wish the word of God, uh, you know, as it was proclaimed here, that in Nehemiah's day was received by us. That we would respond to it in the same fashion, oh God, I fall before you, I'm listening. Maybe it was, you know, with repentance, with, with sorrow at how lost we have become. So they're responsive. Secondly, they're, they were submissive. Look at verse 6 again. And as they praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands, then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Hearing the word of God, the people recognize God is here. And, and, and he's living. And their response to this fact was no less than a desire to, to fall before him humbly, gratefully, and adoringly. And again, the, you just can't go back and say, oh, that happened then. How does this affect you today? Do you feel you have that same submissive response in your life to God? Or would you be honest with yourself, so this has winged a little bit, quite a bit in my life. By bowing and kneeling before God, they, it was like taking this, this, this posture of a beggar because they knew, we're in need of your help, God. I see how lost I am. And they're grateful because God will help. Lord, thank you. So as you read the word, as you gather, do you feel you have the same sense of, of this awe that came over the people back in Nehemiah 8? God is here. I'm responsive. I'm submissive. Because in, Nehemiah, in our text, Acts 2, 42, we, we read about they devote themselves to the teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to these feasts. And then the very next verse says this, a deep sense of awe came over them all. We don't, we don't worship a, a book, but we worship and adore the one who speaks to us through it. These are his words and his thoughts. He wants to give us life, he says, and give it to the full, and we want it too, but we never would aspire to such heights by our own strength. We've got to realize, I can't do this on my own. Rather, I acknowledge my complete dependence on God, His Holy Spirit, to communicate what I need to know so that my life can be abundant and eternal. So we come, hopefully we come humbly, submissively asking God to make it possible for by the spirit of his revelation to reveal his truth to us. So we can apply that truth to our lives. 
The people were responsive. They were submissive. And finally and thirdly, the people were teachable. The people knew the word they were hearing, which was the first five books of Moses, weren't just the words that they were spoken to Moses back through Moses through that day, but they're still applicable to them today. In the same way, when we read the word, we know it's not just a history book about what happened and it applies to us today. You can know the truth today. You can apply it to your life today. When you come to the word of God, you need to come with some patience. You need to come with, with a willingness to understand, God, what is your message for me today? When you read the Bible, that's how you should begin. Before you read it, like, God, what do you want me to know today? What you need to do, as he said in Acts 2, 42, spend your time. And I know a lot of you, and I, I'm, that's because I'm one of you, would confess. I know certainly in my time, my life, and it is so much better now, so I'll confess that as well. But you feel like I, I just don't spend the time to stop and listen and hear from God. And you need, to, you need to hear, and you need to study the Word of God. We need to learn what He's saying and, and how it applies to our life. Because in Nehemiah 8, 7 and 8, let me read this. Oh, I've got my Bible here. It's going to get my Bible. It's right here. Uh, verse 7 and 8. They read from the book of the law. Oh, sorry, no, 7. Verse 7. Then the Levites, and there's names of Levites. The Levites were the ministers of the day. Then instructed the people, instructed the people in the law. They, he, the ministers took the time and they just felt they went in these small groups and the ministers of the Levites uh, interpreted uh, this, this truth for the people today. And it says in verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the, 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 the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand helping the people to understand each passage. So it wasn't just that they were hearing, that they had people in place to help them learn. Sound familiar? The Levites instructed the people. The Levites were the ministers. But what they did was they gathered the congregation. They went into smaller groups, making it clear, giving meaning so that people could understand, what is God saying here? I hear it, I'm reading it, but what is he saying? Help me understand. And what happened in Jerusalem from this point on from that point on, was a byproduct of the people's response to God. You may not remember this message a week from now. That's okay. I understand. But if you would make the same decision to spend your time in God's Word today, hearing from Him, learning from Him, your life from this point on will be transformed. It would change. It's not just something you remember in a week, but you'll remember from years from now. Because every day, that water is like going through a colander and, and it's cleaning you, it's refreshing you, it's renewing you. So this fall, we are going to be doing something called Abide Groups. And um, these are groups where we're going to give you as a church an opportunity to do what they did in Nehemiah 8. Break up into smaller groups. Spend the time. I know a lot of people say, I'm too busy, and, um, but I know this, you're never too busy for what matters in your life. If this, really, if you, this is true, God wants to speak to me, I need to understand, I'm willing to take this, little t- this time out of 168 hours this week to meet and understand what God wants to say to me. Some of you say, well, I don't know the Bible well. I've heard that reason even from in this church. 
That's all the more the reason to come because you, this will help you learn. Glenda and I last night before we went to bed, it was an exciting time. We, we put on Bible quizzes on YouTube. <laughs> and I realized I knew a lot, but there's still some things I'm still learning. We didn't know everything. Can you believe that? I don't know everything. Who knew? But I'm still learning, and so I still want to hear and learn and apply God's truth. So please don't say, oh, I'm too busy. Don't say that I, I don't really know very much. Those are reasons why you should be coming. Um, there is this, and again, I love old pastors, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who Tim Keller would quote all the time. Uh, he was a Welsh minister. He said this, the primary task of the church and its minister is the preaching of the word of God. He went on to say the, dec the decadent, is that how you would say that word? Periods and eras in history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined. What he's saying is when preaching kind of got compromised, um, not based on scripture, that's when, that's when we saw history decline. That's when we saw the people, I mean, the people of the day, the culture decline. So we can't afford to forget the truth God shows us in this festival. And, Jesus, and, what, and, and, and what Jesus taught his own disciples, the Spirit of God uses the word to cleanse, revive our lives. The Bible won't change you just because you hear it. It takes you responding to it. You have to submit to it. God will direct you. Um, and James, it says this, do what God's teaching, do what God's teaching says. Don't just listen and do nothing. Don't just listen and do nothing. When you only sit and listen, you're fooling yourselves. So don't think, I just came to church today. Boy, if Mark preached longer than usual, half an hour maybe, that's going to change my life. No, unless you take what we're saying. You may not remember in a week, but if you take it today and start making these changes, it'll change your life. So we're going to provide you these abide groups. They're going to be coming. I'm just giving you a little heads up about that. Um, I'm going to skip ahead because I am going long. But it says this in James 2.19. Um, because sometimes we say, okay, but isn't it enough that I just know there's a God? I've had people say that. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to come to your church. I know there's a God. And I get that. People know there's a God. They believe there's a God. But even the demons <laughs> say that. It, you know, it, 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 in James 2.19, it says, you believe there's one God? That's good. But even the demons believe that, and they shake with fear. Once Jesus was approaching two possessed men uh, full of evil spirits, and the demons responded to him saying this, they came to Jesus and shouted, what do you want with us, son of God? See, even the enemy recognizes who Jesus is. They know he exists. It's not that you believe that there's a God, a higher power. You have to believe in that God. When you believe in something, you follow it, you trust it, you put your life and say, here, I believe in this, I will follow it, not just that it exists. I mean, the demons know that much. You're no better than the demons if you just say, I know there's a God. But you don't do anything. But because you believe in God, you must follow Him, you must obey Him, and you put into practice what you hear. So, the last verse, 13, chapter 8. On October 9th, the family leaders, some of us are family leaders, men, women, mothers, fathers, grandparents. The family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. Verse 14, maybe I'll read verse 14. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses 
to the Israelite and then start giving instructions. And this is another feast. I'm not going to have time for today, um, the Feast of the Tabernacles. But let me just end here. This is where I'm going to end. Trust me. We want to defend the Bible. This is the Word of God. There it is on my coffee table. We don't, we don't always treat it like the Word of God in our life. Because we hear it, we see it, we don't apply it. So we're going to end today by doing what we used to do. I think we're in COVID. I'm going to do, I thought we'd do it today. We're going to take two minutes. And we're going to just listen to God. You heard this. I understand you might forget it later. So let's do it now. Let's, if God, you say, God, what do you want to say to me? God can do that in two minutes. Or he'll begin to say something he wants you to do. So this is the questions. Up on the screen, you can see uh, uh, this um, slide with these two questions. So James 1.22 says, do what God teaching said. Don't just listen and do nothing. When you only sit and listen, you are fooling yourselves. Okay, we get that. So two minutes. God, what is one thing you were saying to me today? He would speak to you about something that was said in the word, in the message, in the worship, in the prayer start. What are you saying to me? If you're listening, don't be surprised. God's saying, I want to talk to you about this thing. So then you got to ask, how is he asking me to respond to what he's saying? How is, can we take two minutes and do that? And then we'll close in worship. Some music will come on. Spend this two times in reverence before the Lord. Responsive, submissive, and being teachable today because God is speaking.
Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We make these messages available to give you a window into our church, but also an open gate for you to join in with our community. Our Sunday service is at 10 a.m., and we look forward to seeing you soon. And know that there is a place for you at The Gate. Please remember to visit thegatechurch.ca for more information about our church.